Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Viene Madison que le pega el arquero. La pelota ingresó. No. No ingresó. Señoras y señores, ahí está Aaron Ramsdale. Dos salvadas monumentales de Ramsdale. ¿eh? Monumentales. Tremendo. Señoras y señores, ahí está Aaron Ramsdale. Pega. No. Monumentales de Ramsdale, ¿eh? monumentales. Pega. No. No, no. Señoras y señores, Aaron Ramsdale. Aaron Ramsdale. Dos salvadas. Aaron Ramsdale. Dos salvadas. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you too, Andrew. And happy Valentine's. Oh, happy Valentine's to you as well. Should I say, top of the goodly morning to you, James. Ah, well put, my Irish kin. <laughs> Have you been in, inducted? Are you back in? Are you one of us Yes, now? they did the ceremony. <laughs> they dunked me in the Guinness and they pulled me out and I was Irish. Amazing. Um, have you explained my absence in my absence? Does anyone, have I said on here that I was going to? I Ireland? think we said, yeah, you were talking maybe... I don't know if it was here or if it was on one of the Patreon ones, but I did mention on Friday um, that we were not doing an Arsecast Extra post-Wolves because you were, you know, going to be in Ireland. And, mm. um, you know, so it was. So, I mean, did you did you get to see the quarry? 
I actually drove drove past the quarry. <laughs> I, I went with my brother and my dad, and my dad went, mm. "Oh look, a quarry!" And I said, "I can tell you a thing or two about that quarry. I've I've done my research on the quarry." <laughs> it was it was very funny because we were going to. My dad wanted to kind of investigate our heritage in mm. Ireland, particularly in a very, very small town would be a stretch, place called Bohola uh, in County Mayo. And uh, the day before we went, he sent me a, a TripAdvisor link that had the headline, <laughs> things to do, top 10 things to do in Bohola. <laughs> and then 10? you clicked on it. <laughs> and it, it literally said, there are no results. <laughs> uh, but despite that... Yeah, we had a good time, and you know it was interesting. I mean, it, you know, literally, we walked into this small town and said our name was McNicholas, and we're sort of inundated with people throwing history at us. Um, had a walk around a graveyard, saw a bunch of people called James McNicholas buried, which was quite uh, strange. It's a good omen for our season. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and I found an Arsenal bar. We were staying in a tiny town called Kiltimach. I apologise to the people of Mayo for that pronunciation. And they had a place called the Tavern Bar. And, yeah, the guy who owns it is a lifelong Arsenal fan and it's decorated with Arsenal memorabilia. Um, so that was quite uh, satisfying. Wow. And I uh, kind of home from home for me. Uh, but the most interesting thing, I think you'll agree, is that before I went, I bought this book. And it's called Mayo Folk Tales. Right. Rather than immerse myself in true history, I guess I feared there wouldn't be sufficient true history that I thought the folk stuff, that's going to be interesting. Right. And I was reading through it. It's a lovely book. It's quite funny because at the start, it, the writer is like, I really want to place on thanks to my wife for her stunning illustrations in the book. Um, and I have to be honest, it's a lovely book, but it is accompanied by what I can only describe as the scrawlings of a child. Uh, <laughs> intermittently. <laughs> like, I mean, well, the thanks in the introduction was really not necessary. I think, you know, clip art would have sufficed, but there you go. But I was reading through and there's a whole section about birds. Uh-oh. Think, you know, it begins, there are many things that hide from the light of day, things that go bump in the night. Once the sun goes down, they come creeping out of the shadows. All of us have felt a shiver up our back, seen something out the corner of our eye, and yet when we look, we find there is nothing there. Uh, many birds were believed to carry dead souls or were believed to be dead people incarnate. And then over the page, along with a, a frankly terrifying drawing, captioned soul gatherers, is the following sentence. Magpies... <gasps> were regarded as the repositories of the souls of evil-minded or gossiping women. Wow. The whole magpie phenomenon explained. Laid bare. The trip to Mayo was worth it. I did find the truth I was seeking. Do you worry, perhaps, that somehow that the universe has set you on a path <laughs> via, like, you know, you, you, you've spoken before about your your dad and your brother being Chelsea fans, right? Yeah. So, you know, you chose this this beautiful red and white path instead, which led you to start a blog about Arsenal, which led mm. to a podcast about Arsenal, mm. from which somehow this this magpie thing came to life. And then on a quest to rediscover your Irish roots with said father and brother, you you unearthed the real truth about the magpies. I mean... It all comes full circle. It's fate, surely. 
quite funny as well. I think that uh, these evil spirits are the they are the reincarnated souls of not murderous, not you know cold blooded killers, mm. gossiping women. <laughs> well, I mean, is there any more true evil in this entire world than well, yeah. gossiping women? Because, I mean... I don't know what that men, says about historical Mayo society, that that was regarded as the great reincarnated evil. Yeah. The women will come back and talk among themselves yeah. in the form of birds. Men never gossip, uh, of course. We would never do never anything Never, like ever. Never, ever. There's not even a... There's certainly not a whole industry based around uh, sports-related uh, <laughs> gossip. transfer gossip. Um so there you go. Mayo uh, was excellent. And I have to say it was quite a good omen because it, from an Arsenal perspective, the past few days could not really have gone better. I mean, I was at Wolves. I, I went to the game and then flew, flew basically mm. straight away to Ireland. And then the results that have come in since. Holy I mean, everything's, everything's coming up Arsenal. Everything's coming up Millhouse. Let me ask you this, because we haven't spoken um, since the Wolves game. Mm-hmm. Did you did you disrespect football? <laughs> did you cast shade on the entire town of Wolverhampton or Borough or whatever mm. the fuck it is? Mm. Did you shame yourself <laughs> and Arsenal fans in general by at the end of the game? Did you did you celebrate a win? Just a bit, Andrew. Just, just a, a bit. bit. I've got to tell you, so Molyneux, the away fans, I've never been before, are in the Steve Bull stand um, and it's not behind the goal, right? It's mm. sort of along the lower tier of one of the side stands, if you will. It's unusual, it means yeah. It's, it is very unusual and it's an unusually good view um, of a game. Yes, yeah, so one sort of unfortunate side effect of that is because the fans are kind of spread out in a, a long, thin rectangle rather than a, a tight square, if mm. you will, um, it's not as easy to generate the sort of raucous atmosphere you normally associate with away fans. But one of the interesting upshots of this deployment is that behind the away fans, immediately behind them, are is a big perspex wall. And behind that are a series of Wolves supporting boxes. Ah, the corporates. So it, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, not too corporate. I mean, these were full of people in replica shirts who were clearly very invested in the outcome of the game. Right. And what that meant was that everything that happened was kind of a direct interplay between us in the away end and these guys in the boxes behind who were increasingly apoplectic about <laughs> time wasting fouling and there was a lot of sort of gesturing of like you come in this box through this passport you know through this perspex wall and we'll see you know there was like real palpable fury and anger and uh, it just uh, increased and increased across the 90 minutes until like i mean at the end of the game it was just sort of a standoff of like Arsenal fans being like come and get us you know taunting these guys <laughs> these caged Wolves fans baiting them uh, so it was incredibly fun and yeah. satisfying and yeah I really celebrated it because also there was the release of a lot of tension I yes. mean I only watched the highlights of that game yesterday when I got back 
and I had blocked out quite how stressful some of it was. The I, the elation yeah. washed over me and washed away the memory, I think, of that last half hour or so. Yeah, I mean, I watched your, I watched your post-match uh, video um, mm. where you were talking about that sort of phenomenon when you're in the ground, when you're at the game, it maybe doesn't feel quite as stressful as it does when you're, when you're removed from it, true. when you're watching on TV. And I do think there's something to that, you know, um, because it was pretty stressful. It really was. Oh. Um, but this has become a whole big thing now, hasn't it? This idea of like, what, what can you celebrate? What should you celebrate? How? should you celebrate? To what extent should you celebrate? Like, there are levels that are acceptable when you win 1-0 away from home on a Thursday night, apparently. I mean, I saw the Wolves' Twitter account. They beat um, one of the results, obviously, that was very good for us over the weekend was um, Wolves beating Spurs, which, of course, is hilarious. Um, but then their, their Twitter account tweeted, celebrating in the right way. And with, like, yeah, italics yeah. on the right, as if, like... There's some, I don't know, Geneva Convention as to how you are allowed to celebrate, whether, you know, the players, you know, should they celebrate? Fans, should they celebrate? Should the players and fans celebrate together? Should there be any kind of intercourse, if you like, between players and fans at the end of a uh, a 1-0 win, which, you, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It is quite bizarre the way this has gone. It sort of reminded me a little bit of the, the postponement, you know, the way... Yeah. Um, when all the games were being postponed uh, because of COVID cases and injuries and everything else, it was like, well, games being postponed because of COVID cases and injuries. And then it was Arsenal. It was like, oh, my God, the game is being postponed because of COVID and injuries. What a disgrace Arsenal are. And it seems to me that there's an element of that. And maybe we're a bit sensitive, perhaps sensitive to that kind of stuff as Arsenal fans. But I don't think I've ever really seen that kind of you know, overt policing of people's emotions over something that is clearly very emotional. If Arsenal had just won the game in a routine fashion, you know, they'd been yeah. 2 0 up and controlled it, 11 men, got over the line, I don't think... And then, and then they'd celebrated in yeah. that fashion. I, I think that would have been reasonable to say maybe that's a bit excessive. But in the circumstances... They were massive, massive points. Mm. And they have proven to be even massiver, uh, given mm. what's followed over the next few days. But, you know, it's a real backs-to-the-wall effort, a huge amount of tension being let out of that full-time whistle, a big, significant win against a team who were close to us in the table. They could have gone I above thought, us. But yeah. I, you know, we talked about it as a possible six-pointer, really. I, I just think any kind of... Mm. Uh, you know, attempt to sort of downplay the significance of that or poo-poo the celebrations is ridiculous, really. And as Arsenal fans, you know, we should absolutely tell people where to go because I think we knew it was big. Mm. And actually, the way events have fallen out over the subsequent few days have proven that to be the case. I think those celebrations even feel more justified a few days on because that win put Arsenal in a really strong position um, so yeah, they can all get fucked yeah. really, can't they? <laughs> they absolutely can. And I do think perhaps that, you know, the, the, as you say, the importance of the game, the six point element to it was probably why Wolves were annoyed by it as well. It wasn't so much the celebrations. They were pissed off because they lost. I, I did enjoy this from Steve Pye on Twitter, who was at 1980s sports blog. And he said, if we beat Wolves at home, not an easy task as a certain club discovered yesterday, 
Mm-hmm. Should the club play celebration by Cool and the gang in the stadium at the end of the match, or should we be above that kind of thing? And I absolutely think we should. Absolutely. Yeah, let's get working on the, on the stadium DJ to make that happen. I think... Yeah, I mean, I've seen people saying let's we should all be on the pitch, <laughs> full firework display, you know, everything. I mean, yeah, look, it, it will. I think it might have some needle to it that game now, mm. based on these comments and everything that's fallen out. Even though Wolves did us a big favour this weekend, um, I think uh, yeah, we should absolutely go for it if we beat them. And it's an interesting prospect, isn't it? I mean, two home games yeah. coming up now. Brentford and Wolves, who we beat not long ago in Wolves' case. Brentford haven't been in great form. We really owe them a result after what happened on For the opening sure. day. For sure. So, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm certainly not getting carried away with um, top four percentage odds. I, I mean, I, do you take any comfort from those? I don't know if you've seen, but we have... The statisticians tell us we've tipped over the 50% probability mark in terms of reaching the top four. Yeah, I find it hard to take any great comfort from that, to be honest, because, you know, (laughs) um, they're stats and, you know, I'm not dismissing stats. I think, you know, they're a useful part of football, but they're not um, imbued with the magic of foresight or anything like that, you know? Football is quite random and all kinds of shit can happen. So, no, but I do look at our place in the table and feel encouraged and confident that we are where we are. And after the weekend, you know, we should mention that Man United dropped points, Spurs dropped points, West yeah. Ham dropped after points. After doing so in midweek as well, let's remember. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's been, it's been a really case. good week. And I think we've talked a bit about the clarity of what we have ahead of us and how that could be a very useful aspect to what we need to get done between now and the end of the season, right? Um, mm. And I think this sort of hammers it home like, Points on the bo- uh, points on the board versus games in hand is a you know is a discussion that you can have one way or the other. But when I look at what we've got to do, and when you look at the table, I think what a way this is to to sharpen even more the the focus of the team, which I think also is worth pointing out was reflected in the celebrations on. Thursday night against Wolves because it said something to me about how invested they are in what we've got to do. You know what I mean? And and yeah. This this last couple of years have been really difficult for Arsenal. We know most of the reasons why. We know where we've been in the table. And I wonder sometimes if when the stakes are a bit lower subconsciously is it difficult to get yourself properly up for games, if you know what I mean. Like, last season we went on a good run towards the end and we ended up finishing eighth, and that was kind of about as high as we were going to finish. We didn't want to finish seventh because we didn't want to be in that Europa Conference League thing, right? But Mm -hmm. when the stakes are higher, when there is very, very definitely a top four place to play for, I wonder, you know, is that a really positive thing? I mean, obviously it is. I know it's reductive to say it, but, but, but the fact that you've got something that's more tangible ahead of you and and the potential that a good run and a good end to the season brings in terms of what you're going to do next season, where you're going to play, how you're going to play, you know, what it could mean for recruitment, Champions League football. These guys look hungry. They look up for it, all of that kind of stuff. But then, you know, is it is it augmented by the fact that you have this pretty substantial thing to play for? Yeah, I think when there is a finishing line of sorts within sight, 
Arsenal tend to be better. I mean, mm. I think that's a big part of why they've been a good cup team in recent history. Mm. You know, when there's a kind of tangible prize and a clear path to get there, it does seem to improve focus and, and performances a bit, generally speaking. But it's interesting. I was listening to the radio um, at the weekend and I think it was Five Live and they were talking about fourth place and they were saying, you know, nobody seems to want it. The way these results are going, nobody wants it. And I felt like sort of saying back, well, Ar- Ar- Arsenal wants it. Yeah. And I do think that amidst our sort of disappointing January in terms of the results in the Cups and the um, lack of signings, I do think it's been slightly lost that generally our league form didn't suffer too much. We only played two games, a, mm. le- a-, a loss and a draw. And granted, we would have liked more from those, but it's by no means disastrous. When it comes to the actual form table in the Premier League, we're doing all right. You know, mm. we're sort of on track. And that the games in hand situation has dramatically changed. I mean, it feels like not long ago, everyone was telling me Spurs have got 10 games in hand or something. Don't worry. You know, once they, as soon as they win those, they'll run away with Yeah, it. get their 30 um, points. Yeah. Yeah, hasn't quite worked out exactly. We've all seen probably that clip on social media of uh, Hargreaves and Rio Ferdinand listing off Ranić's next 10 games. Win, 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 win. Should be 30 points. Um, hasn't I, happened. I haven't seen that, but... Uh, I really, yeah. it's great. It's on my <laughs> timeline. Uh, and they, they literally, they go through 10 fixtures and they say something like, they're, like, you know, they should, they're all winnable. They should, be, they should be winning all those games. I think they're on track for maybe less than 20 of the 30 available. This is Ferdinand's um, new Ollie's at the wheel. Very much so. Very right. much so. Uh, so that's something to keep an eye on. I think they've got one more game remaining in that run. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think things look healthy. I mean, mm. I wouldn't, like you, I'm not too swayed by the probability stats because do they factor in the probability of Granite Shaka being sent off for something insane or, you know, somebody important getting injured or us just inexplicably making a, a big mistake? I don't know. But we look in a good shape. And mm. I think we, as a club, it's quite a sort of galvanising thing, really. I think people were a bit deflated off the back of January, but events of the last few days have swiftly dealt with that. Yeah, I mean, the the flip side of the the opportunity ahead of you is the pressure, isn't it? That, that yeah. you know, you, as the season progresses and if you can keep up with um, the teams ahead of you, there, there, there is an element of pressure that you're going to have to deal with. And that can be inhibiting at times for teams. Like, you know, this game against Brentford at the weekend and we're looking at it going, look at the results that have happened this week and they're brilliant for us. But we have to make sure we capitalize on that. We have to make sure yeah. that that this opportunity that has presented itself is one we get the maximum from. So it's another aspect to how we view the potential of this team to finish in the top four is that like, it feels like for a, a while or quite a while, a lot of what we've been doing in the Premier League is is playing catch-up, if you know what I mean, trying to make up for a poor start to the season or a poor run of form so we can haul ourselves back into, um, you know, a, a relatively, in, a, in inverted commas, decent position. Whereas I think what, yeah, I think what, yeah, I think what we're looking at now is we could be the, the, the leading pace horse. Setter. Yeah, the pace mm. setter of this sort of pack of teams behind the, the top two, top three. And that is a different position to be in. And that's certainly something that we're going to have to contend with. Yeah. And it's interesting, even not having many games, that brings a different kind of 
focus and scrutiny. You know, Arsenal have got nine days or something to be thinking about mm. this Brentford match, which in one respect is a positive, but again, just could crank up that pressure a little bit. I think we have to try and be front runners, pace setters at this point in the fixture list because it's relatively kind, famous last words, mm. etc. But two home games, Brentford and Wolves. Then we go to Watford. Then we host Leicester. Neither of those teams playing particularly well. Then it's Aston Villa away. I mean, you know, mm. they've improved a bit under Steve Gerrard, but that's a game. Arsenal really should be thinking about winning. Crystal Palace away. Brighton at home. Southampton away. You know, mm. there are difficult games to be rearranged against Spurs, against Chelsea. We host Manchester United, but... There is also a winnable set of fixtures in front of us. I'm not going to do the Rio Ferdinand thing of winning, no, winning, no, winning, no, no, but, no, no. But the opportunity is there, right, for us to really accumulate yeah. some points. I, I, I think your point about pressure, though, is really interesting. And I was just having a conversation with uh, Amy Lawrence about the sendings off uh, that Arsenal have been getting. And, and she mentioned thinking that this is quite an emotional team. And I think, actually, that that as a thesis sort of, explains quite a lot about this season. I think this is a deeply emotional team. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that in some of the red cards and the decisions they make. You also see that in things like the celebrations uh, that we saw at Molyneux. I think you see that uh, in the connection that is building between supporters and fans. I think when we sort of think, oh, we really care about this team and we really sort of empathise with them and we feel that connection, I think they're palpable emotion is inevitably part of that the other side of that coin is that you know it's a fine line between emotion being a very positive influence and it being a mm. negative one and handling that pressure and you can see how much they want it how much it means to them all their ability to kind of keep that on the boil without it bubbling over and Arteta's ability to manage that is going to be critical isn't it really between mm. now and the end of the season I mean what you would say though is that this is where you want to be this is where you would want to be like if oh, you're yeah. striving for progression if you're striving to improve dealing with the pressure of expectation is far better I think than dealing with the pressure of underachievement and having to respond and having to bounce back and all that kind of stuff so if we're looking at this as um, something we have to deal with it's it's a measure of like, are you going to get there or not? Because you, you have to get on top of this. You have to be able to deal with it to make the kind of progress that we want to see the team make. So I'm, I'm not sanguine or whatever, but I'm, I'm just really interested to see how well they do in these games. I think that's a really good point about it being a, a slightly emotional team. And I haven't asked you about what you thought of the, um, mm. what you thought of the sending off, the other night like what was the reaction inside the ground from fans just standing there going what the fuck and well, with the cold light confusion. of day yeah and in the cold light of day what what are your thoughts on it we were really confused i was confused certainly about what had gone on um just because you know it was difficult to follow it was on the other side of the pitch as well mm. um in the cold light of day i think Speaking of emotional, I think the referee made a slightly emotional decision. Yeah. I think that he was very frustrated. If you think about it, when when a team sort of time wastes, the referee pays a price for that. 
Like, you know, when when one of the teams is time-wasting, let's say it's the away team, the home fans get on the away team's back. But more than that, they get on the referee's back. Yeah, that's true. And it's it's a problem for them, in a way. It becomes their problem. And, of course, that's the job and they should handle it. But I do wonder if that... Because Arsenal did sort of start some of that stuff quite early on and there was a bit of cynicism about the way we played in the second half, I thought. And I do wonder if it got on top of the referee and he felt like... Uh, you know, emotionally emboldened to do something that you wouldn't really ordinarily see happen. I yeah. mean, it's it's very very unusual. So I think Martinelli was uh, quite harshly done by the, the only the other side of that is that I do think the situation is what it is. You know, Arsenal are a team where referees I think do feel um, how can I put it the stakes around giving Arsenal a red card are lower, it seems to me, than they are with other teams. It's like, they're that red card team. Yeah. So what's another one? Yeah. And, and I do think that's playing into a kind of unconscious or conscious, depending on your you know beliefs, <laughs> um, bias there. And I think the, the problem is Arsenal will have to deal with that. And we can't just let that situation self-fulfill we have to try and seize some control and ultimately stop giving referees the opportunity to make these decisions sure um, I, yeah I thought Arteta's comments were quite interesting after the game because you know everyone seemed to think it was initially about like the the red cards that we've received I think when you look at them, we've only had three in the Premier League. It feels like we've had way more, but we've had three. And I think there were a couple of other teams at three, a load of teams on two. And of course, the only team in the world that hasn't had a red card this season is is Burnley, which is kind of <laughs> kind of amazing. But there you go. Um, but I, I think part of the frustration from an Arsenal fan's perspective is what hasn't been done with other incidents in games where we seem to get punished all the way to the maximum. Like that was what happened to Martinelli was the maximum punishment that you can pick up in like five seconds on a football pitch. You know, it it doesn't happen that way so rarely. I think there was one example of a a game, um, a Northern Ireland player got sent off for something very similar. But But but, equally, there was a a clip going around on social media of Davy Proffer of Brighton, I think with the same referee compared yeah. to 2000. Well, that's it. Like yeah. Arsenal Twitter somehow managed to find, to dig yeah. this up. It, of course it's they amazing. Did. Of course they did. It's amazing. But there are other things like at the weekend, Bruno Fernandes throws a punch and there's no punishment. And Harry Maguire, Harry Mustafi, sorry, uh, he stands on someone's leg and doesn't get any punishment. And the Tommy Asu incident and the MacArthur on Saka incident and things which we look at as Arsenal fans and, and know we don't suspect, we don't fear, we know absolutely 100% that if an Arsenal player did what those players did, it is a red card. Like, no question. Mm. We do not ever get the benefit of the doubt in any of these situations, whereas other teams appear to get a bit more. And I think you're right to say Arsenal are seen as the red card team. It's easy to give a red card against Arsenal. And how we change that... I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. But, um, yeah, we need to make sure we, we, we stay with 11 men as much as possible between now and May. That is for sure, though. Yeah. And I think maybe um, there are lots of reasons. You know, we talked mm. about in the past on here about quality of 
tackling a ball winning. You know, Arsenal are Arsenal good enough uh, in that regard? I mean, one thing I think is really interesting is Burnley don't get bookings, and I think yes, maybe that is partly perception. You know, they're a kind of rough and tumble team, and mm. you know, it's just them being physical. But I think as well, it's the type of fouls. You know, if you're a team that are behind the ball, there's a certain type of foul you're making. Whereas Arsenal, I think a lot of the time, it seems to me the bookings we pick up are for kind of cynical stopping a counter-attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the kind of Man City fouls that, you know, Arteta famously uh, validated on that Amazon documentary where he was kind of like, you know, I want the guys to... Yeah. um, bring them down early doors and I just feel like sometimes with Arsenal there's a kind of uh, maybe there's a lack of skill in the way they do that but also there's a target on our back now and referees I do think do have a, a, a perception of us that is influencing decision making it, it has to stop though doesn't it I mean I have to, as much as I enjoyed Wolves when Martinelli was sent off at a position in the game where we weren't comfortable, but we were secure, you know, we were in the lead and had 11 men and mm. had every chance, I think, of seeing it out. At that point in the game, I think Odegaard was sort of growing into it. Saka was growing into it. You know, I thought as much as Wolves might threaten, we would offer something on the break. I really feared that that would be the game and the yeah. points gone. Yeah. You know, and we can't sustain that at all going for the remainder of the season. I know that some of the sendings off have come in the cup, cup competitions, but... It is a, a troubling pattern, nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there will be some focus on that, um, on the training ground and in the team meetings and the briefings and all of that kind of stuff where, you know, I I think that's a really good point about the types of fouls. Mm. Because if you are beginning to become more of a front-footed team, which I think we are, I think there have been... Um, there's been progress in that regard. When you're playing against a team that is going to, you know, try and hit you on the counterattack, you 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 need to make those fouls. Mm. Sometimes you absolutely need to make those. I mean, I can remember one. Was it last season? The season before? I can't remember. I think it was Genduzzi actually rugby tackled somebody at yeah, one point. Yeah. He just flew through the air like some kind of Grimondi. woolly yeah. Superman and and hauled the guy down. And like, it's not subtle. Um, but there are times where you do need to make those kinds of fouls. Um, so it, it's trying to find the balance between, uh, you know, how we how we deal with teams that are going to break on us and how we play the kind of football that we want to play. But that is obviously something Mikel Arteta and his coaching staff are going to have to to fine tune themselves on the training ground and going through those kind of those kind of scenarios because. Like you said, in the in the Amazon documentary when Arteta was at Man City and he is talking to the three midfielders, I can't remember who it is, David Silva, De Bruyne and somebody maybe. else, Gundogan yeah, or, or one of them. And he is basically saying, if they go past you, foul them. You know, So this is something that they talk about. This is something that they prepare for. But, you know, we're not... I Can think maybe... We, maybe, I don't know, but we're not very subtle. Like, would that be no. fair to say that as a... Yeah, like, I think that's right. I think we're, I think we're clumsy sometimes. Yeah. And I think there is a skill to making those fouls in mm. the most subtle, least egregious fashion. The way in which you walk away from the incident even, I think mm. can determine if you get booked. And perception is part of it. Um, 
And, and, and again, to come back to that point of emotion, I think that's the other thing we can do. I think if you take emotion out of challenges, then generally you're safer. I mean, if I think about Gabriel sending off against Man City, mm. you know, emotion was kind of the primary driving force there. Um, I think if, if you look at some of the Xhaka instances, you know, I think that clearly has played a part in him leaping into stuff he shouldn't have leapt into. Mm. And that is that I do think is going to be so fascinating because I, I love this team, actually. I would rather have this kind of emotional, connected, invested team. But we're not cold-blooded killers. No. That's what we're definitely not. And the degree to which we need to be between now and May will be interesting, I do, think. Do you think that is something that we can develop because maybe, maybe that's experience. Yeah. yeah. Because it, like someone like Xhaka is never going to be no. a master of the dark arts. You no. know, he he's <laughs> no. he's not uh, when it comes to not being subtle, he is the absolute king of of not being subtle and even the booking he got against Wolves the other night was a perfect example of that where the guy's <laughs> running past him and Xhaka's kind of standing there and the shirt is getting longer and longer and longer. You're going, yeah. "Oh my god." I mean, can, will you ever learn? And he won't. So that's fine. That is what it is and he is who he is and everything else. But I do wonder if certain other players might be a little bit better at it, you know, as as yeah. time goes on, where, like, if Kieran Tierney starts to do it, is the referee going to look at Kieran Tierney with his shirt tucked in and his nicely parted hair and everything else and think about him in the same way as, you know, Granite Jacker or, you know, somebody who is perceived anyway as a more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? More of a foully bastard. I can't think of exactly what I was going to say, but yeah, I think um, I think that can come with time, can't it? I mean, mm. if you think about uh, for the second podcast in a row, I'm going to mention Stefan Lichtsteiner. But when you think about defenders, kind of over thirty, um, well, any any Arsenal defender over thirty, really, they you know you you do associate that kind of know how mm. with it, and I do wonder if people like White and Gabrielle will develop that over time. Tierney, too, to an extent. Um, I hope so, because as much as all that emotion is a, a huge positive force, you know, the ability to be a kind of cerebral assassin at times mm. um, is really significant and key. And we need a balance, basically. Yeah. We need a balance. Well, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out and, and hopefully we can uh, avoid red cards. Anything else from the weekend you want to talk about before we go to um, to part two? I don't think so, really. I mean, honestly, I just thoroughly enjoyed watching all the other results come in. I sort of couldn't believe it. You know, when Leicester pulled into the lead ahead of West Ham, mm. but even when West Ham got a late equaliser, I wasn't deflated by that. I think with this race being so tight, the difference between three points and one point is massive. Mm. Um, you know, draws for other teams. Yes, please. I'll take those all day long, especially against outperformed teams like Leicester. So, yeah, just really uh, thrilled. I mean, our sort of situation improved without playing over the past couple of days. Actually, it's quite relaxing. If we could do that, <laughs> if we don't have to play any games between now and the end of the season... Um, uh, I'll take that. Yeah, I mean, I think in the, around the 85th minute of um, the Wolves game, I was looking for another mid-season break, to be perfectly honest with you. The stress was <laughs> was too much for me. But uh, yeah, it is yeah. nice when we can make some kind of progress without playing at all. But this weekend, we're going to have to, you know, 
do the do the football thing and hopefully continue to make that progress. Okay, we will take a break right here and we'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Hurrah! I did it without fucking it up for about the first time in a month. So well <laughs> done, me. Um, do you want to go first on the questions? Yeah, why not? Why? We've had a few questions about something called a Super Bowl which took place last night. And right. Unicorns of Saka, who's at Arsteta on uh, Twitter, says, Did seeing Stan Kroenke hold aloft the biggest prize in American sports give you any renewed hope that KFC have what it takes to drive Arsenal to the top of world football again? Oh. <laughs> I suppose what you would have to say first and foremost is that KSE are... Um if you said they had an area of expertise, it would be U.S. sports, right? So I'm mm -hmm. not sure you can really drive a... a it's a very different competitive yeah, landscape. it is. Um, there was a video doing the rounds. Let me just... I think if I can find it here. Um, let me put it... Uh, I replied to it 
uh, uh, M. Berland, uh, Mark Berland, um, posted a video on Twitter of a, an interview with Josh Cronkey, and he was talking about all kinds of stuff. But he was talking about um, Arsenal oh, yeah, and the Super League actually. and all that. I'll put a link to the video in the show notes so people can have a look. And if you go and look at it on YouTube, it's um, you know you can jump in at the the point where he's talking about Arsenal. You don't have to listen to him talking about basketball or any of that if you don't want to. <clears throat> um, I mean, he's a good talker. Um, I, I still am quite cynical about some of the Super League stuff and some of the explanation around it, but he seems to think that, you know, he made a mistake and he's held his hands up to make uh, that he's made a mistake and that he can learn from it and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm not sure what, what the Rams winning the Super Bowl actually means for Arsenal. I don't know the that ramifications. it means. The ramifications. The ramifications, yeah. Um it's always seemed to me like the KSE sports teams, franchises, however you want to call them, have been quite middle of the road. Like, I'll stand to be corrected on this by by American sports fans because, you know, I don't claim to have any expertise whatsoever in any of the, in any of the sports that they're involved in. But winning the Super Bowl is obviously a, a fairly huge thing. So the investment that they made in the team and in the coach and all that kind of stuff and the stadium as well um, looks to have looks to have paid off. Um, I suppose the people of St. Louis won't be uh, as happy about it though, considering how no. how much they got fucked over by KSE and and all the rest. So I don't know. It's it's one of those where I'm just not invested in it at all, really. Um, and I don't really think it has any bearing on on what Arsenal can do or will do. Um, so yeah, I I think it's just its own separate thing. But maybe maybe the the the, the experience of winning something, Stan and Josh might decide, hey, this is good. We like this. Let's have a bit more of it across the board. I think that's about the best we can hope for as Arsenal fans. I don't think. Financially, it has much impact. Interestingly, I haven't watched the Super Bowl yet, but I gather that the owners get to lift the trophy first. Um, really? Or the coach or the players, yeah. That's weird. Which, yeah, I mean, I hate to break it to them, that ain't ever going to happen in the UK. <laughs> um, but, uh, so yeah, I guess they will have sort of tasted that glory and that success, mm. albeit one that they've achieved at huge financial cost in terms of the stadium and other expenses. Um, I don't necessarily see it as a, a, an immediate thing. Now they pivot to the Premier League, you know, and next the Champions League. Um, <laughs> but I do think that, again, I don't have the full background on this, but I have seen a couple of tweets flying around this morning suggesting that KSE's competitive record is at least improving across mm. other sports too. Um, and there are some people who see some parallels in the kind of executive and management and coaching structure of the Rams and Arsenal. You know, he, the guy who's just lifted the Super Bowl for the Rams becomes the youngest coach to ever do so. Obviously at Arsenal, they've uh, invested enormously in a, a young coach too. Um, I think it will give them maybe some conviction that their kind of project idea that they're sort of rolling out across different sports might have some validity. Mm. But I don't see it having much tangible on-field benefit to Arsenal. I mean, 
the real step for Arsenal to make, whether it is this year or next year, and we all hope it's this year, mm. is to get back into the Champions League. You know, we don't need to win the Super Bowl right now. That's not the position that we're in. That's not what we're thinking about. Arsenal need to take that step of getting back into the Champions League, the revenues that come with that, the uh, status that comes with it. I think the commercial mm. revenue that will follow, I just think that's very, very clearly the next sort of point in the project. Um, and yeah, it's tantalising. Mm. It really is. And I, and I, yeah, as for the Super Bowl, um, no, I don't think it, it bears much relevance. But uh, yeah, listen, I, I think honestly, the, the, the as I said, the thing we can hope most is that Josh develops more of a taste for success, sporting success, than perhaps his father has demonstrated. Um, mm. And I don't preclude that as a possibility. I mean, he, like you say, he talks a good game. He, yeah, he does. He is a good talker. He reminds me a little bit of Ivan Gazidis in that way, that there's a lot of mm. talking, and then you get to the end of it and go, oh, uh, what did he say there? What was it? Yeah, yeah. But, you know... He's a young guy, and clearly he's the he's the KSE guy um, at Arsenal. Stan and Josh are on the board, but it seems to me like he's the one who's who's most involved. Um, so we'll see. We will see. Um, here's a question. I know we're, we talked about a bit towards the end of the first half, but um, a couple of questions on the Discord, more about the refereeing and Mikel Arteta's comments yeah. after the Wolves game. Joe Yeti says, as much as we love to see Arteta call out the PGMOL, do you think this is going to end up having a negative impact because he's called them out? I don't think he necessarily called them out. He, he said we want to have some conversations with the officials. I think that's what he said. Um, and then uh, Kieran E on the Discord as well, he said, uh, the follow-up to this, could it get worse given the microscope we seem to be under? It's that weird balance, isn't it? If you put some pressure on a referee before a game, the old Fergie mind games, and even Wenger did it from time to time where, you know, you talk about something and the referee, does he then become a self-fulfilling prophecy or is he a bit more lenient, et cetera, et cetera? How, how do you think that will go down um, given those lines of communication? I mean, it could go the other way. It could backfire. They're a sensitive bunch, I think. I mean, ultimately, they are human and we talk about the emotion in the Arsenal players, but they are subject to the same uh, whims. Uh, they're not robots, ultimately, and I think criticism can backfire. Um but I think we have to try and put a bit more faith in the process than that, as difficult as it is. Otherwise, we'll just lose our minds. Mm. We have to hope that those conversations can be constructive. Um, I mean, on the similar theme, Scott Mack uh, on Twitter said, I know you'll both hate this, but how do we actually deal with the current refereeing situation? I'm not one for conspiracies, but it's clear this year will never. Some individual refs are holding Arsenal to different standards. Mm. I found it interesting. Arteta after the game said he's running out of ideas. <laughs> yeah, I think that was um, a bit tongue in cheek, though. You know, there was a, a subtext to to that comment about like, well, what can I do when this is like out of my hands? I mean, what can he do though, Andrew? Like, do you have any bright ideas? I mean, we joked about sort of you know, could you practice fouls? <laughs> but what I, I, I'm at a loss, really. I suppose the thing that you would say is one, like. We have to acknowledge that at times Arsenal have been a bit naive or stupid or not particularly subtle, as we talked about in the first uh, half of the show. But also there are moments where players are going to get booked. That is just the reality of football. 
it's how we manage those moments, um, how those players manage the games when they're on yellow cards, which I think the other night they did pretty well. Like Shaq and Partey booked before halftime. I can't lie and say that I wasn't worried. I was. Um, but they managed the game well, both of them. They didn't do anything stupid. They didn't give the referee another decision to make. And as experienced players, that's what they can do. So I don't think you can just, you can't never get booked again. I don't think that's realistic. But when you are booked, don't do anything stupid. I know some people will say, well, that's what Martinelli did. But he, had, he didn't know he was going to be booked. Um, you know, I don't think even if you say those were two yellow card incidents, he had any kind of precedent in his own career or watching the Premier League or playing in the Premier League for the last two and a half, three years, like nobody's seen it before. So why would he consider the idea that he was going to be booked? And what he was doing was, if it was misplaced, he was still showing the kind of commitment that the manager is looking for when a player run, runs past you. It's like, chase him down, stop the attack, you know, prevent the danger, all of that kind of stuff, which is part of their preparation, I'm sure. But it is, I, we, there's going to be an element of, of a referee doing something in one game that he doesn't do in another game, and that's going to drive us mad. But all we can do is control how we behave and how we respond as and when we face situations when we're down to 10 men or, or all the rest. Beyond that, I, I, I don't know what we can do, really. I heard quite a compelling case, and I'm going to horribly paraphrase it now, that uh, Elliot made on the Arsenal Vision podcast. He was talking about, you know, the, is there a conspiracy theory? Is there a conspiracy around Arsenal's red card shame, as it were? And he was talking about how, you know, there relatively, there basically aren't many red cards in football. They're a relatively low incident thing. You know, you're talking about a handful of incidents across a multitude of games. And so it's difficult to extrapolate from that, that there is a genuine agenda there. Um, it was on their most recent episode. It's worth a listen. Mm. But I, I do think that what Arsenal could do better is kind of smell a red card being in the offing. You know, I, I know that that doesn't fit with, we just want consistency from referees, but I don't think you're ever going to get absolute consistency from human beings. And I do think sometimes... The temperature of a game goes up, the pressure on a referee mounts. And sometimes what you just need to do as a player is say, just don't do anything stupid for five mm. minutes, you know, just till the heat's gone out of it. And I think that, again, is something that comes with cool headedness, with experience. You know, not every foul is judged the same. You can make an identical challenge in the 30th second of a game and the 30th minute and they will be judged differently. Yeah. And there are all kinds of dynamics affecting a football match at any one time. It has its own internal politics and Arsenal just need to be a bit smarter, mm. I think. Um, there was a good... Uh, I think good, that's a big part of it. Yeah, there was a good uh, comment here on the Discord from Willowa who said it's probably too late. But I noticed Connor Cody talking quite a lot to Michael Oliver in the tunnel before the game while Lacazette and the other Arsenal players were just staring straight ahead. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, but should the ability to work 
in inverted commas, with a referee and get them onside be something we should consider when appointing the next club captain. And I do think there is something to that, that maybe the, deliberately or otherwise, that referees are probably going to be a bit more open and communicative with English players. Mm. And given that we do have... Aaron Ramsdale between the sticks. We've got Ben White. We've got Kieran Tierney, Scottish, of course, before anyone <laughs> says otherwise. Bakayo yeah. Saka, Emil Smith Rowe. You know, there is a, uh, in inverted commas, homegrown element, uh, a substantial one, a core of that to our team. And maybe that is something that we can um, use to our advantage to ensure that maybe when something does happen, we get the benefit of the doubt. We do get the benefit Absolutely. of the doubt. Whereas, Again, it's not a personal thing or, or even deliberate, but like if a referee feels like he doesn't have any connection with, let's say, Lacazette, um, and it's not a criticism of Lacazette, it's just the reality of nationality in the league that you're playing in. Like I would expect in Spain, a referee to have a greater connection with a Spanish player than with an English player who went over to play there, for example, or a French player or, or you know, whatever else. That seems normal to me. Um, so that yeah. that aspect and of it what is... England captains get away with, by Well, way. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's We just not, need the armband on one of our boys. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's, that's part of it, you know? It is part of it because it goes back... It goes back years and years and years to like Alan Shearer trying to kick Neil Lennon's head off and he didn't even get a, a booking for it. Can I ask you this one then? Because it's sort of... Um, it's sort of connected. AS37 Gooner, who said, uh, assuming Lacazette does leave in the summer, who are your captain, vice captain, and third captain? And with the likely departure, um, oh no, I don't really want to talk about the experience. There's another uh, part of that question, but I think this is the more interesting one. When you're looking at your leadership group, whatever you want to call it now, who's your captain, vice captain, and third captain going into next season? Did you see the club put out an interview with Lacazette where he talked about potential captains? Mm. Um, and he mentioned Gabriel, mm-hmm. but, but again, mentioned his English, um, as everybody does. He mentioned Ben White. Yes, and I think that's a very Kieran interesting Tierney. one. Yeah. yeah. I, if Lacazette were to go and uh, will not be a regular, let's discount him for a minute. I think I'd be looking... I mean, it's hard to look past those names. Um, I'd probably throw Ramsdale in as one of the vices, as a contender. I just think, you know, a vice-captain goalkeeper, we've had a lot of success with that in the past, and there's something useful about the fact that they're always in the team. You know, they provide massive yeah. consistency. Um, David Seaman did it for a long period of time. and. Um, I think Martin Odegaard as well is, is certainly a candidate. Odegaard, yeah, yeah. I I, I would look, I think I would look to one of the centre halves. I do think Gabriel and Ben White make the most sense, um, and maybe, but based on the language thing, I would ben edge White. slightly towards Ben White. Yeah, for number one. What do you think? I think he's definitely a candidate. It could easily be Kieran Tierney as well. Um, yeah, who's been with know, the club longer as well. A little if bit they more experience. That. Not hugely um, um, older. I mean, they're more or less no, the same age, maybe a year a old. a long time. But yeah, 
I, I think maybe Tierney is is in that group. Um, and if you're if you're having a group that's four or five players, um, you know, I think you've got to take uh, Ben White. You've got to take Ramsdale just because of the the personality as well. I think these mm-hmm. guys are starting to to emerge as leaders. We wonder, didn't we? You know, who who is going to step up when the likes of um, David Luiz left a fairly sure. dominant personality for better or worse um Aubameyang is gone now of course as well so that sort of cleared the decks a little bit uh, in that sense so I, I think it's going to be those and then I, I I also wonder if as well if you're thinking strategically do you include Bukayo Saka yeah. In in that group, maybe not. I'm not talking about him as as captain or anything like that, but as a really important player and as somebody whose future you want to tie down, just giving him that little bit of responsibility um, within that kind of a group might well be something that that look. He's an Arsenal man and everything else, but just that that greater inclusion into the team and how it operates and, and all the rest of it might be might be something to think about. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, and in fact, when Aubameyang went, you know, there were people uh, close to the situation who thought Saka's name could even be a discussion uh, mm. as a potential captain at that point, um, which sounds surprising, but like you say, there, there might be a kind of strategic element to that. I, I think... I agree. And the truth is I wouldn't be unhappy with any of those players in any kind of order. And I suspect what it will be is a group, right? It will be, it's Odegaard, Gabriel, uh, probably still Rob Holding, if he's still here. Mm. Um, White, Tierney, something like that. Uh, my In terms of actually who wears the armband, who is the captain, I have a slight bias towards... The centre-halves, I think. Yeah. I just think, as much as I like Tierney, I think he's a more... I think they are more extroverted personalities and I think there's something valuable in that if you're choosing a guy as the kind of symbol, you know, the the sort of rallying point. Mm. Um, it's not the most significant thing, but I, I think it would make me edge towards those. But, yeah. it, you know, it's amazing that we've got uh, a number of names in contention given the overhaul in the squad and the fact we were sort of scrabbling around, like you say, wondering who these leadership figures might be. Yeah. Uh, maybe we don't want to take Tierney's focus off the long throw either as well, you know. <laughs> it's interesting that, you know. I think yeah. it was, I, I, I hate to uh, out, but I think it was Stu, the photographer, who had the towel, um, <laughs> certainly in the first half. Uh, he, I think he tossed KT the, the blue towel because I was on that side. Brilliant. And, uh, yeah, clearly they've worked on it. I mean, you know, Yova, who is the set-piece coach, his responsibility is not only corners, but throw, throw-ins as well. And so I guess we're seeing this kind of evolution in what yeah. we're trying to do. I was, um, like you, I, I heard on the Askcast with Andrew, you were saying, you know, sort of uh, flashbacks of Stoke <laughs> and felt a bit uneasy about it. I have to say, I thought it was it was actually relatively decent. I was expecting it to be a bit of a disaster, but I thought the throw that the couple that Tierney produced was sort of vaguely dangerous. So I, I yeah. imagine we will see it again. Uh, no, like I think, look, it was slightly tongue in cheek with Andrew on the Arsecast on Friday, and yeah. what we did say was that 
you know, given we do have some issues with goal scoring and we're, we're a bit light up front, um, as we all know, maximizing our, our goal scoring potential, be it from set pieces, long throws, whatever it is, makes a lot of sense. So, you know, um, we'll wait and see how it goes. Just on the subject of kind of um, cynicism and captaincy and cold-bloodedness, we didn't have a question specifically related to this, but I thought I'd mention it given that I watched the game of the weekend. Did you see what Cesar Azpilicueta did uh, in the World Club Cup no, final? I didn't. Explain. So, uh, Chelsea played Palmeiras in the World Club Cup mm. final. And as I was with uh, my dad and my brother, I was uh, subjected to watching that. Um, and they won with a penalty that was won in the final, I think, four minutes from the end of stoppage time. Right. And the penalty was awarded. Um, Chelsea had a shot blocked handball VAR replay. It was awarded. And Azpilicueta was kind of talking. He's the captain of Chelsea. He was talking to the referee the whole time, saying, you know, it's a penalty, it's a penalty. You know, I saw it hit his hand. In fact, when he give it, gave it, he asked for the bloke to be sent off um, <laughs> because he was like, it's, you know, he saved it. It was going in. But what he did was he picked the ball up and uh, placed it on the penalty spot and lined up to take the penalty kick. And in the next two minutes, all the Palmeiras players uh, were sort of all over him, you know, trying to get in his face, scuff up the spot, surrounding him, telling him he's going to miss. What was all that shit housing stuff? Well, no, you know, just the, yeah. it wasn't mental. It's was just the normal stuff right. that you see when a penalty is about to be taken. But it was quite, you know, the goalkeeper getting in his face and, you know, just trying to put him off, trying to, mm. um, you know, uh, throw him. Right. And then the moment before the penalty is to be taken, Azpilicueta walks away. And Kai Havertz, who has basically been stood on the halfway line, completely free, thinking about his penalty, with no Palmeiras players anywhere near him, strides up, takes the penalty, bottom corner, Chelsea win the Club World Cup. Wow. And I've never seen it done. And I just thought... That's what Arsenal <laughs> in an ideal world could do with a bit of, oh. you know, just that sort of complete cold-blooded calculation. Mm. But you um, know if we did that, whoever stepped up to take the penalty would, like, blast it out of the ground or something <laughs> like that. Like maybe, the, uh, like the Perez-Henri uh, Man City thing, you know? But no, I, I, I know what you mean. I like it. Uh, you know, I have no fondness for Chelsea, no particular fondness for Azpilicueta, mm. um, although I think he's a very good player. But, yeah, when you're looking for, like, a, what can a captain give you or sort of what kind of on-field strategy can they mm. actually impart, I thought that was really impressive, I have to say. Yeah. Um, even if saying that Chelsea are, inverted commas, world champions does make me feel slightly Nobody Ill. cares about that, though, do they? Does anybody uh, well, really care? Well, the thing is, care? Palmeiras really do. It's this funny thing where in South America, that tournament is incredibly prestigious and, right. like, they were on their knees. Um, on the subject of Chelsea, uh, here's a question from Artin on Twitter, at Artin Nemoni. And Artin says, Call me an optimist, but am I the only one thinking about top three? <laughs> Um, I mean, why not think about it? I I wouldn't... I mean, what's the league table situation? Let me just have so a look at it here. Chelsea on 47. They've played two games more than us. We are on 
39. So, so if we win won our two games, games and then beat be Chelsea. Two points off. Then we beat Chelsea. Of course, at Stamford yeah. Bridge, yeah. Uh, yeah. Easy peasy. Yeah, why not think about that? I don't know. Look, all you can do, as we said, is is just look at the next game and win the next game and win the next game and, and see where you go. I, I, I would worry maybe a little bit about that being... Look, I guess you... What is it? They say you should aim as high as you possibly can and see where you end up or whatever the fuck that is. Um, mm. Like, I think it's very optimistic. I do think it's optimistic. So I will call, I will call him optimistic. But why not? Why not have a think about it? Um, yeah, I, I, I just think Chelsea are too strong, really, to let that kind of a, a lead slip at this point of the season. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I, I mean, obviously, I got the intel from the, from the blue uh, corner. And oh, yeah. the, from, from what I gather, they're not playing especially well. Uh, I know they've obviously won this little mid-season mm-hmm. tournament, but um, they've not been particularly convincing. I think they, you know, they only beat their uh, Middle Eastern opponent one 0 in the semi-final. Just edged this one on penalties, and mm. I think in the league they've not been great. There's things that aren't quite clicking for them as they were last season. They edged past Plymouth in the cup, didn't they as well? Um, mm. Drew with Brighton, yeah. I mean, listen, they're, they're a very strong squad and they should absolutely yeah. finish third. Uh, I'm not really thinking about it. I mean, fourth would exceed what my expectations were coming into the season. So I'd, I, I wouldn't just bite your hand off. I would eat, I would consume your entire body. Um, wow. Right my now. entire body. I mean, that would make this whole podcasting quite difficult. I just do it on my own after that point. Okay, I would. Like, I would have subsumed you. <laughs> you have two heads. Like That's my uh, plan. That's always been my plan, Andrew. Oh, have I not mentioned God. that? Yeah, now the true evil <laughs> I, of the I, magpie oh. fate is upon us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some gossiping women told you to do this, did they? <laughs> yes, they were in my ear. Um. Anyway, over to you. Have you got a question? Uh, I do have a question, um, but I can't find it. So hang on one second. Okay. Yeah, it comes from Lordy C, who's at Lordy C 85 on Twitter. And he says, do you think Gabriel Jesus is on Arsenal's striker list? Could be nothing, but seems to make sense. Worked with Arteta. Bit like Lacazette in style, but younger and better. If City sign Haaland or uh, somebody else, he may want to leave. And it's another Gabrielle to add to the squad. Yes, that's true. We would have to just call him Jesus, I guess. I mean... Don't fuck with the Jesus. <laughs> I I hope he's on the list. I haven't heard his name. I don't know if that's just because we haven't considered it especially realistic. I mean, he's, he'll have a year left mm. on his Manchester City deal in the summer mm. and they will probably sign a centre forward they tried very hard to last season um, I think he'd be a terrific signing I have to say and not only can he play through the middle he can play in wide areas as well he's played on the wing a lot for City this season they play that kind of weird strikeless system mm. um, he can press he scores goals he's the right age He's Brazilian. We've had a decent track record with those recently. Got a nice little gang of Brazilians for him to come into already. Um, I'd love that signing. Six really goals, would. nine assists this season. 
Nice. This is very decent, mm. isn't it? I mean, maybe that's because he's been playing eight in the Premier League, wide right, quite mm. a lot, um, which is not where we need somebody. But yeah, as a kind of mobile centre forward, I think he's a really attractive option. I mean, I- I'm sure Manchester City will try to keep him. It's just whether you know Mikel can get in his ear, mm. and promise him lots and lots of minutes. I mean, he would get lots and lots of minutes if he joined this Arsenal team. If if Lacazette goes and Nketiah goes, um, he would get lots of minutes for sure. And he'll be thinking about Brazil, you know, Mm. as most Brazilian footballers do. I mean, um, and he'll be thinking about what's best for his international uh, career. If he think fears he's not going to play much at City. I mean, 15 Premier League starts. It's not bad at all at this point of the season. He's been very, very involved. Mm. Might be a bit pie in the sky, but uh, yeah, listen, I would, uh, I'm just trying to think. I've bitten someone's hand off. I've eaten someone's entire body. What would I do for Gabriel Jesus? I'd probably regurgitate you and eat you again. <laughs> would it be like, <laughs> would I come back to life like Terminator 2 where they I melt the so, guy? Yes. They so melt you know the guy and he just comes back in. Oh, you want me to feel the pain of all this thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's fine. I mean, it would be a shoddy experience without, you know, the... <laughs> The torture being inflicted on somebody else when you uh, consume their entire body, yes. Uh, Um, (laughs) Yeah, he'd be a great signing for any Premier League club, I think. Let me ask you this one then. Similar kind of vibe. Freddie LJ on the Discord says, not that I've heard it mooted, but if we were uh, willing to let Pepe go back to Lille in exchange for Jonathan Davis or Jonathan David, is it a deal you consider for next season? Also, assume you'd agree that Pepe's race is run at Arsenal. Yes, Jonathan Davis apparently is a uh, uh, an international rugby player. Is he? Um, yeah, for Wales. Sounds like Jonathan David, the Canadian footballer. Again, um, one that would make quite a lot of sense. I tell you the reason he's really interesting. So basically, last season he went to Lille, having scored quite a lot of goals in Belgium, and it was ostensibly to sort of replace. Is it Aussie men? Om Simen? That very expensive. Uh, well, the guy who went to Napoli, yeah, had. yeah. I think I think so. I might have more of events added up, but basically, the expectation was he'd come into Lille and score a load of goals. He didn't really, but what he did do was work incredibly hard off the ball. So his pressing, his ball winning, his ability to be a focal point for the team and kind of link the play was so good that Liverpool started looking at him very seriously as a possible successor to Roberto Firmino. And what I find compelling about Jonathan David is that this season, he's changed. He's doing a bit less of that and a lot more goal scoring. Mm. Um, He's up in double figures for goals in league. And he was leading the top scorers. I'm not sure if he still is, but in a division with, you know, Mbappe and Messi and Neymar and a few others, that's no mean feat. And he's played a bit more like a poacher at times and what that suggests to me is that at whatever he is 23 something like that let's have a look at him now just better check my facts 22 still actually and only just he's someone who has quite a rounded game and has shown an ability to do kind of both sides mm. of what we would be looking for from a centre forward now can he put it all together I don't know but if you're talking about the type of centre forward I think Arteta might be interested in uh, I think his name has to be 
in the mix. And certainly Arsenal had watched him quite closely when he was in Belgium. I don't think he was on the radar in January at all, but if he if he keeps it up between now and the end of the season, mm. why not? You've got to consider him, I think. Yeah. He's one of the names that's doing the rounds, that's for sure. What about the potential of a Pepe swap? Is there an accounting trick we could use where, you know, whatever we still idea. owe Lille is then yeah. whatever... I don't we'll know. We'll still be paying for Pepe. Yeah. That's for sure. So maybe would would he be up for that? Would he see that as regressive? Would he like it? I don't know. Um I suspect we'll hear a bit more about Jonathan David. I think if he if he can carry on doing what he's doing, there's gonna be a mm. lot of clubs looking at him. Yeah. Um and also, you know, he's uh, yeah, I just think that age, twenty two, and he's won't be twenty three till next January. I mean he's Really promising. All right. um, on the subject of strikers, I thought this was from Saul T. His, his name is actually Saul T. Airy Henry uh, <laughs> on the Discord. And they said, Voot Veghorst, 12 million. Isn't that the low-risk plan B type of striker we could have got done in January? I suppose we could have if we'd wanted to. You have to imagine. Like, I mean, they didn't it, pay loads for him, Burnley. Oh, no. I was about... 12 million, was it? Yeah. Like that. I, I, yeah, it feels like that is exactly the kind of plan B striker we could have gone for if we'd wanted to, but didn't. Like, we didn't want mm-hmm. to. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they made their decision in January. It's it's weird to, to sort of think about it um, at this point because, yeah, yeah, you know, we, we just have to get on with it. I mean, we did have a question about Eddie, and um, I can't, can't find it exactly. Just quickly on Vegas, it is yeah. worth saying that Burnley gave him three and a half years, and he's 29. Aye, um, well, then that's exactly what we shouldn't be doing. You right. know what I mean? And then maybe we could have got him for on a smaller contract, but I suspect the length of contract was a big factor in him making that move. Yeah, know? yeah. Um. We had a couple of questions. I'm see if I can find it here. Uh, ben on the Discord. What did you make of Eddie's performance last week? Body language doesn't tell the whole story, but as the rest of the team worked incredibly hard to keep the three points, he seemed as though he couldn't be bothered. And uh, Paul on Twitter is that Gunnar Stifler said, "Goodly morning, Eddie's cameo at Molyneux lacked the urgency and energy of his teammates. Isn't it time to try someone else in this role of closing a game out?" Yeah. I've read a lot about um, Eddie on kind of social media and stuff, and a lot of people said they felt the body language was off. And I have to kind of accept that because I'm in the ground and, you know, you see things slightly differently. I I didn't see it as an attitude problem. I just thought he played very poorly. That was my perception, Mm. that he came on and was not good at the job that we required from him. But then I am someone who generally, I think I do give footballers the benefit of the doubt. I, I, t- I tend to think that these highly competitive individuals rarely don't try. I think obviously there are other psychological factors that mm-hmm. impede their performance. Could be motivation, could be contentment, could be morale, all these things. But very rarely would I think that a player in his position would come on and just not really make any effort. I I, I sort of, and that wasn't, I have to be honest, that isn't how I saw it at the time. Right. I just saw it as a guy basically not playing well. What what did you think? I was just a little bit, like, I don't think, um, I don't think he couldn't be bothered. I don't think that's fair. 
but I did expect a little bit more from him in terms of Same. what what he could have given in just even physically. I mean, there was a yeah. moment really late in the game where he drove me mad because we'd won a free kick and we had the ball in the corner and he just needed to keep it there. And he played a ball straight to their goalkeeper, which went straight down the other end and they got a corner, which was like, what the fuck are we doing here? You know, and I think he's experienced enough and, and savvy enough to know that he should have just kept the ball in the corner, really. So I don't quite know what he was thinking in that in that moment. But I thought maybe we could get a bit more physically from him. You know, chasing across the line. I know you want to keep your shape and keep organized when you're down to 10 men. So maybe it was just, you know, stay in the zone where if something breaks, sure. you can get Lock to stuff it. Off, look to yeah. win the second ball, but I, stuff I, yeah. like that. But, you know, I, it is one of those things where I think if you had another option... Where if you had another player who was going to be um, at the club next season, you would use that before you, you would use a player who's heading into the final months of his contract. Yeah, I mean, uh, the only thing I'd say about the contract thing is Eddie and Ketia should be highly motivated to perform right now. I mean, I think he is in danger of not getting a particularly attractive move. What if he already has a move that he is quite yeah. happy with. I mean well, that that that's a possibility. I mean mm. he can sign a pre-contract agreement with a foreign club and that would affect your motivation for mm. example. I don't know though if that's true or not. I honestly have no idea. Um but yeah, that's I guess we can't preclude that possibility. Mm. I mean obviously what were the options? The option was Pepe, I guess. Yeah. And I, I have to I have to be completely honest and say when the change was made and I thought, right, what I'm looking for is a guy to basically shuttle across their defence, close stuff down, try and nick a ball here and there. That's not what I think. I probably of Pepe, would choose yeah. yeah, I probably would choose Enketia over Pepe for that job. But he didn't do it well. No, um, the other option is Martinelli, of course, and he was the guy who got sent off. So, you know, you could easily yeah. have, have um, you know, you could have put Pepe on. But again, I, I'm not sure Pepe is a down to 10-man player. Then again... He played to his strengths. No. Well, if you can counter, maybe it does. Um, but it is, mm. it is first and foremost, a, a rear guard defensive uh, effort. Let's finish out with this one, though, because it, it, we mentioned Martinelli. Um, Mozza... Mozza man Morris, he loves his Mozza. Um, he said, with Martinelli out next game, do we put Saka on the left and Pepe on the right? And uh, Ozax, also on the Discord, said, are we going to see Emil Smith-Rowe on the left in the next match? I think, you know, barring any uh, bad news, I think we are. Yeah. I think um, he's probably overdue a Premier League start. I can't think when he last started a Premier League game. It would have been December, certainly. Yeah. Um, Maybe it was five. It wasn't even the Leeds game, so it was pro it was the three-two defeat to Manchester United on the second of December. Wow! Yeah, he's well overdue, isn't he? I know he has had injuries, but yeah. yeah. So I think he's well overdue. I think Pepe obviously gets bumped up the pecking order. I hope we will see Pepe against Brentford for twenty twenty-five minutes. Um, intrigued to see what we can get from him. I do think it will be on the wing rather than through the middle. I just, mm. I'm not sure Arteta 
is uh, well i don't know there's no indication that that's kind of in the plan at this point but i guess we wouldn't know if no. it was i think it will be um, yeah I, I think i think so and uh, you know he, he he deserves that i mean he scored a lot of goals off the bench sort of you know if it weren't for the excellent form of martinelli would definitely have been starting so it's an opportunity for him to restake his claim and give Mikel something to think about for sure all right well look we will uh we will leave it there for today um to you guys thank you as always for listening james the nicest valentine i've ever received is the knowledge that if it came right down to it you would consume me uh while i screamed and flailed around but you know this is this is part of the evil magpie plan so i'm glad we have it out in the open now to be honest yeah, absolutely better out in the open <laughs> all right we will catch you on the next one folks take it easy bye bye